Welcome to What's Up with Betsy Johnson, a podcast from a longtime Oregon legislator and keen political observer discussing what is right and wrong with government, politics, and public policy. Well, sticking with police and crime, uh, let's talk about Central Precinct a little bit. Uh, you've, uh, you've talked about Portland police having to actually walk across a bridge. For folks who don't know, there's I, I don't know exactly how many bridges Portland has to downtown. There's eight or nine of them. Uh, but they have to walk across a bridge because they can't park downtown. There's nowhere to park, too many tents, I assume. And so they have to walk down to where their precinct is, Central Precinct, which is right smack dab in the middle of downtown Portland. And you were telling me before we started that there may be a new location for that Central Precinct, What I, which I would imagine would make the officers who have to work there pretty happy, possibly. Well, I've heard an interesting theory. I have no firsthand knowledge of this because I'm not in the room where the discussions are going on, but I have heard a very interesting possibility. There is a building downtown, a relatively new building that is in what is uh, referred to as Old Town. Old Town is one of these communities that has always been home to people that struggle and especially struggle now with drugs. They've struggled economically, they've struggled socially, they've struggled in lots of different ways. Um, it was also the home and kind of the, the cultural hub of the Chinese community. Most of the Chinese community has decamped from downtown because of the violence, the drugs, the crime, and have relocated to, to other parts of the city. So Old Town has been particularly hard hit. There is a building that was once occupied by the Port of Portland uh, and now is, uh, then was an office building for another educational undertaking. And a now is apparently for sale. And if there was the possibility that the city could acquire that building and move all or a portion of Central Precinct down to that building, it would not only revitalize Old Town, but it would also, and put a heavy police presence there, but it would also provide parking. Uh, I haven't been in the building for a long time, not since it housed the Port of Portland, but it is a lovely, well-appointed office building so that the administrative functions of Central Precinct could be carried out. I don't know how much um, renovation or remodeling would have to occur to make it a functioning police facility, but uh, I think the multiple benefits of considering moving it should be examined and it should be examined by people other than me who are not party to the transaction but just interested observers of the portland scene and i think this is one of these situations where you could have multiple beneficial outcomes if the city would take a serious look at what they're doing um in the meantime the city is working away on remodeling the city hall to accommodate all of these new city councilors that the voters have created as they've changed the the uh, um, style the or the organizational structure of Portland, Oregon's governance, um, one could think they could take a little bit of money and at least e examine whether or not the acquisition of this former Port of Portland building in Old Town uh, could have a salient effect on that part of town, could uh, repurpose the building, could diffuse police presence throughout the city. Uh, I, I hope that people that hear this maybe would be willing to advocate to take a look at it. I certainly am going to advocate to take a look at it. Really? So they want to renovate the uh, the, the city hall? 
They're talking about it. I don't know if they've started yet. They're adding so many new people and all of them want commodious, beautiful offices. I don't know where they're going to put them all. But um, there's been discussion that, oops, when we put out this ballot measure, we really didn't think about where all these people are going to go. And what's the cost of fixing up City Hall that now is fortified like Fort Knox? Um, And where will all of these new folks uh, hang their hats when the new model of governance is implemented? So I'm saying, you know, take a look at what might be available in commercial buildings and see if instead of trying to put lipstick on an old tired building, are there other possibilities? There are landlords in downtown Portland begging to not be in the places where they are right now. What are the chances that somebody could take sort of the big picture view and say, does City Hall really have to be City Hall or could we modify it and have offices someplace else? And maybe this kind of big thinking is going on. I don't know that for a fact, but one would hope that somebody at least is looking around and saying, how can we uh, improve the entire situation of the continuing deterioration of downtown with the repurposing uh, or the, the acquisition and repurposing of some buildings? Perhaps the new government people could, I don't know, pitch tents perhaps downtown somewhere? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, people have certainly gotten um, innovative in the tents that they're pitching. Uh, a very prominent, very thoughtful lawyer in downtown Portland, a guy named John DiLorenzo, mounted a case on behalf of a number of disabled clients that were forced to go out into the street to get around the tents. And if one is in a wheelchair, that one has to move the wheels with their hands. It doesn't take a huge stretch of imagination to realize that if you're forced out into the street that lots of people had been using as latrines, that there's a good possibility that that highly unsanitary condition would carry through to their homes or you know onto their person. And so Mr. DiLorenzo mounted a suit on behalf of these disabled folks. And um, how aggressively it's being enforced right now remains to be seen, but some folks have already figured out ways around it. I was asked by some neighbors to come up into a somewhat affluent neighborhood and look at a guy who has pitched a double wide tent at the corner of two sidewalks. One of the sidewalks goes completely through the other one is just a little vestigial nub that hooks on to the complete sidewalk. So it forms an intersection, but one of the sidewalks is completed and one of them isn't. So I think he may have figured out a loophole in the ADA settlement that says you can't block the uh, pedestrian throughway. Well, there is no pedestrian throughway on one of the corners where his tent is. This is a very significant tent that he's pitched. He uses the neighbor's hoses to bathe. It was a little easier in the summer when the weather was nice, but he uses their hoses for water. He dumps his garbage in their garbage receptacles. He scares them when he goes on rampages and wields a pipe. The police have been called any number of times. Some of the neighbors, either to placate him or in the spirit of big-hearted Oregonians, are putting out food and clothes for him. But um, 
until the city gets a grip on aggressive enforcement of both the ADA and just the removal of tents, period, the tents are going to continue to proliferate. That's why I was out in Lens. Uh, a max stop, and for those that don't live in Oregon, max is our light rail system run by an organization called TriMet. And TriMet has stops that have been crime ridden, but this particular one out in the community of Lentz has been taken over by people that are functionally living at the stop and they're dealing drugs and prostitution and crime, terrifying the neighbors, people can't use the stop. So even though that that's, I don't represent those people legislatively, I never did. I have been kind of an honorary Lentz person uh, right after I lost the gubernatorial race, the Lentz people called me and they said, you liked us when you wanted something from us, i.e. our votes. Do you still like us now? And I said, hell yes. So I started going out to Lentz and it came to kind of a, um, uh, a, 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 I don't know the part in a play that's the height of the play where the, all the drama occurs when it appeared that neither the city nor TriMet would take responsibility. And so I called the city and said, what are you going to do about this? Not our problem. That's TriMet. Call TriMet and go, what are you going to do about this? Not our problem. That's the city. So imagine my surprise when I discovered that both the city and, and TriMet had the same lobbyist. So I called their lobbyist, who happens to be a very stand-up woman and a friend of mine. And I said, how about you bring both your clients out here and they can explain to the denizens of Lentz why it is that while they're fighting about whose problem this is, people in Lentz, especially students who might want to ride uh, Max, can't because the stop is so dangerous. And I'll be damned if they didn't both show up. So the, the TriMet came out and they made their presentation. They sent one of their top managers out to visit with people in Lentz about what's in the realm of the possibility or possible. And then the city sent two people out. And um, and we had an interesting conversation. I uh, Nobody misbehaved, but I think TriMet and the city both got a little taste of just how unhappy citizens are with the services provided by government. They're just sick of being patted on the head, told to call numbers that don't answer, or if they do, they put you on a list that's, you know, 48 feet long. Um, nobody comes and nobody fixes stuff. And uh, Portland's tolerance for that is growing shorter and shorter and shorter. So it's a, it, it, this is a compounding problem, whether it's the proliferation of drugs, which, whether it's unusable max stops, whether it's crime. Um, Oregonians, but especially in Portland and Multnomah County, are looking around saying, we're just getting the bejesus taxed out of us. The problem isn't getting less. There are more tents. There's more violence. In fact, uh, somebody was held up at gunpoint in the parking lot that serviced the building where I had my gubernatorial office. Um, so it, it remains a problem. And Oregonians are sick of studies. They're sick of being placated. They're sick of passing the blame. They want solutions and they want the solutions pretty damn fast. Well, what's amazing to me is I was just in Chicago and I was right downtown, you know, right off the Magnificent Mile, Michigan Avenue. 
I didn't see any homeless people nowhere. Now, maybe they just weren't out on a Sunday night after a Bears game. I don't know. But it just, I felt safer there than I feel in downtown Portland. It was really weird to me. Usually, you know, you're a little tense. You're in downtown Chicago. Um, and I just didn't see it there. I, I wonder why that is. I wonder, too, because the Miracle Mile is sort of the heaviest concentration of high-end retail and um, a, a very exciting part of an exciting city. By the way, how'd your bears do? Uh, maybe we could edit that out of the podcast. <laughs> they did great today. Not so great uh, against the Vikings. Sad to say, though, my Vikings friend uh, was very happy. They didn't do well. Well, but to go back to your observation about Chicago, I just was talking to somebody who came back from Houston and they said Houston's a mess um, and had been in San Diego recently and said no problem in San Diego. During the legislative campaign, I was down in Palm Springs and it is just as clean as a whistle. And um, I don't know whether that comes from activist city government. I don't know whether it comes from uh, whatever the source, and I could sit here and speculate until the cows come home. But until Portland takes it seriously and realizes that our ethos of a laissez-faire attitude about drugs, our natural inclination to want to help our brothers and sisters, our proliferation of services that come for free, um, until we dial some of that back, I mean, the statistics show, and I was talking to somebody who had a point in time count, as they're required to do, about what's the profile of the people that are living on the streets. The number of those people who came here with no job, no prospects, but they came because of the free shit that they got, you know, tents and tarps and food, and the list just goes on and on um, about all the cool stuff. And um, in, until our national reputation, and, and it starts with the, the mindset of our leaders changes to force more accountability across the board, I think we're going to continue to attract people who come to a place with a mild climate, at least on, on the west side of the mountains, and all this free stuff and laws that, in my view, enable drug use and abuse rather than asking for accountability, I don't think this problem is going to get fixed in the short term, if ever. Well, let me uh, let me throw something at you here. So when we started this, uh, our, our show back up again now as a podcast instead of a radio show, but when we started it back up again and, and had spoken a few times, two things struck me. One was how very little your life changed after you ran for governor. You're basically doing exactly what you were doing before, minus the title and the agendas changed a little bit. But the second thing that amazed me was your interest in Portland because when we were doing our show when you were a state senator, we didn't talk about Portland much, appropriately so. You didn't represent Portland. Um, but now you are, and I'm curious, what changed for you to want to take on this dragon that is Portland? There's so many things there. It's so much bigger. Why do you want to take this on? Well, first of all, I have been, um, I'm going to say this, and I don't mean it like it sounds, relieved of the responsibility to just worry about Senate District 16. I took my service to my constituents very, very seriously. They had the trust and confidence in me to ask me to go to Salem and be their voice, and they had to be my primary concern at all times. 
So I, I'm no longer their senator. They have a very capable senator in Suzanne Weber. She's doing a hell of a good job, and I'm pleased to be able to help her on occasion discharge her responsibilities in a district that I came to love. So that's item number one. Item number two is that I hadn't been seriously exposed to Portland until I had an office in downtown. And it was right in downtown. It was a block away from one of the worst open air drug markets in all of Oregon. We had dead bodies within a three and a half uh, block radius of the office that I inhabited. And so I got exposed to it. And I, I came to believe as the gubernatorial campaign moved on, and I said this on any number of occasions and in various forums, that Oregon could not succeed if Portland failed. And Portland was failing by every measure and still is. So as an Oregonian, as a native daughter of this place I love, I now am much better informed about what's going on in Portland, and I am motivated to try to change it. I have the opportunity to use many of the contacts that I made during the time that I ran for governor. I have the bully pulpit of this show. I, I have the liberty of being able to pick candidates that I think can change the electoral um, and philosophical landscape of both Portland and Oregon. And so I have the opportunity to, to use the talent and the skills and the connections that I have to talk about fixing Portland. Also, I am witness to the metastasis of the Portland problems into other places. They've come into to, to, um, Senate District 16. There are seriously mentally ill people in Astoria. There are homeless people in Tillamook. There are um, people using drugs in Scapoose. And so I'm aware that unless we cut the snake off the he uh, the head off the snake, and that's the the crime and the problems in Portland, it's going to continue to proliferate throughout this beautiful, wonderful state. So th th those are largely the reasons. But you're absolutely right. The day after the election, I got up, and I will admit to having a pretty ferocious hangover. And I looked around and said, well, what I was selling, which was less politics and politics and trying to find that centrist middle and bipartisanship and let's work together. Oregonians had said they wanted that. Oops, it turned out they didn't. And I lost. It did not dull my enthusiasm to try to make this place better. I still have gas in the gas tank. Um, in some cases, I'm getting calls from people who say, you have a reputation for fixing stuff. Will you fix this? And they tell me whatever the problem is. It is not in my nature to say no. And so I've taken on some constituent issues or what would be characterized as constituent issues, because I think in many cases, it not only fixes one family's tragedy, but it also speaks to larger issues. I'm going to try, I, I hope successfully, to find psychiatric care for a nine-year-old girl. She has been relying on the episodic services of community mental health, and it is not working. Her violent behavior is escalating to the point that her family members are afraid of her. And so I want to try to help this little girl who lives in Portland. And... Um, and use this as an example of the paucity of juvenile psychiatric help um, and, and to try to get some of these kids back on the rails before they get any older.
So there was not only the human compassion aspect of trying to help in this instance, but I can use it as I get better educated about how difficult it is to find psychiatric care for um, young people. I can use that as an example to help fix some of the greater malaise that has um, beset our state. Some of this stuff is just fun. Uh, a, a bank screwed a woman that I met at a funeral. I was just sitting there having a, you know, a cup of punch after the funeral, and she came up and she said, people tell me you fix stuff, and I just got screwed by Citibank. Can you help me? Sure is the answer to that. I'd be more than happy to help you. Um, she was recently widowed, and the bank decreased uh, the available credit that she had, even though she was her husband's sole beneficiary and basically stepped into his finances when he left the, the picture. And the bank just screwed her. And as a female, I'm offended by that. And so we're going to do a little, um, I hope, constructive work to help banks know that you don't treat widows shabbily. So we'll have a little chat about that. So some of it is a heart connection. Some of it is, it makes me cranky. Some of it is, I think I've got the connections and the ability to help that, that other people don't by virtue of having been a member of the Oregon legislature for more than two decades. And while I recognize that I'm cooling down, I'm no longer a Senator and I can't make agencies jump around the way they used to. I can still do a lot of good and I still get my phone calls answered. Well, a couple okay. of words uh, we didn't use much when we were speaking while you were in the legislature were agenda and legacy, because you don't do any of this for yourself, really. I mean, you didn't go to parades because you want Betsy to be seen. You went because you were the state senator and you don't do a lot of things because you have some set agenda. I would think I would know. I talked to you, you know, every week for 16 years or 20 years, whatever it was, um, and still doing it. You didn't have an agenda and you didn't have you didn't have this idea you needed to leave a legacy of something. You were doing things that needed to be done when they needed to be done because you wanted to help people. I mean, there's there was no one in the legislature that even came close to what you did in terms of helping your constituents. And so now you're trying to do that on a larger scale. And uh, are you finding the work as satisfying even though you're not elected and you're not getting paid for it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. It's sort of funny, though, that you should say that because I had a, I, I heard through the vine that one of my former care, uh, colleagues in the legislature had characterized me as mean. I don't think of myself as mean. I think of myself as driven and um, and direct and um, not suffering fools well, but mean. I, I don't know. Uh, others may react after I've said this and, and send us messages saying I'm the meanest person on the planet. Um, no, I, I worry about fixing problems. And um, I, I don't get up every morning and say, gee, I hope my headstone's big enough to say all the wonderful things I've done. Um, I do it because I'll give you an example. I have one of my most treasured mementos from my time in the legislature was a Christmas card that a little girl sent me. And she said, we have Christmas in our house because you saved our house. This was in 2008 and they were deeply underwater and we got a workout deal and saved their house. I don't know at this moment if they're still in the house, but that card meant the world to me. I went to a veterans dinner last night and um, and had somebody come up and thank me for making a, a, an effort to help publicize a 
program that gets canines for veterans that either need uh, emotional support canines or they need seeing eye dogs or dogs now that they're teaching to do all sorts of other tasks. And um, I'm helping to publicize that and promote getting these dogs and veterans hooked up with each other. You do that because it's the right thing to do, not because somebody's going to remember that you got somebody a golden retriever. Or uh, you'd probably rather they did cats, right? I'd love it if they a service cat is that's my highest standard. But so far, no service cats. <laughs> I don't I don't think service cats are particularly cut out for that line of work. And I have to say that some of these dogs are, even though I am clearly a cat person, some of these dogs are remarkably trained and remarkably smart. My goddaughter has very limited vision, and she has a seeing-eye dog. And that dog makes it possible for her to do things that she couldn't otherwise do. Uh, so it, it she's not a veteran, so it's a different program. This is blind dogs. Um, but it, these are these are great programs. And if you can lift somebody else up a little bit, that's that's the degree of satisfaction that I get out of it. It's if I'm in the right place at the right time and I can help, that's what counts. Thanks for listening to What's Up with Betsy Johnson. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please email questions, Q-U-E-S-T-I-O-N-S, at BetsyJohnson.com.